what I want to do today is I want to dive into some of the things that I think Jesus is getting at when he says, I am the light of the world. Why I think that's incredibly good news. speak to our hearts. 
restored to you in this moment and that your love would pour over us. God, we thank you. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. That last song uh, that we sang, when you don't move the mountains, I needed you to move, uh, that I will trust in you, uh, brings a lot of things uh, to mind. It brings a lot of seasons in my life where uh, that's kind of annoying, (laughs) Uh, if I'm honest. When you don't move the mountains, I need you to move. I'll trust in you. Like, why? (laughs) I'm honest, you know. But I can't help but think about, and this might be the grammar nerd in me, uh, that the tense of the trusting there is about a future tense. And part of what's indicated even in the statement, at least to me, is like, I might not fully be there yet. I will trust in you. I'm reminded of... Uh, some words in scripture that someone said that have been really profound to me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That simultaneously you can both trust and not yet trust. And so if that's you today, uh, welcome. You're in fantastic company. And my hope and prayer that is even as we sing together, we're also singing to one another. That there are people here who might feel like they have more faith than you today. Who are singing, I, I presently really do trust in God. And my hope is that we can hold that for you to hold that space, space for you. Uh, I was going to start out the sermon with a question, and I'm still going to, uh, but it feels weird to ask this question now, but my question was, what's good? What's good? My hope was be like, oh, everything's great, you know, whatever. And, but my real question is, what is good? You know, like, what does it mean for something to be good or bad? Is there such a thing as good? bad? Is there something that's such a thing as right or wrong? Uh, I was reading this study from cultural anthropologists from the University of Oxford. It was published by the University of Chicago Press, and they surveyed about 60 different uh, cultures and found uh, seven kind of universal moral laws. And I'm not making a claim on whether I agree with those or not, but I found it fascinating. They said the rules were to help your family, help your group, return favors, be brave, defer to superiors, divide resources fairly, and respect others' property. And these were found across the board in 60 different cultures. And obviously, those varied on how people apply them and to what extent they valued different ones. But the point is that across the board, there seems to be, and like transculturally, these universal sort of rules that people tend to view as good. Things that are beneficial for society. And my my point with that today um, is because there's a a pretty common philosophical notion that I want to just point out and ask you to suspend for a moment uh, as we dive into the sermon today. Uh, It's one that basically says that there is no such thing as something that is objectively true or objectively good. Uh, The maxim might be something like, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Uh, Certainly there are things like that where that can be the case, like If I say coffee is good, it might be good for me, and you may hate it. That's fine. Uh, But Jesus here, uh, in the scriptures, as we've been kind of talking about these I am statements that Jesus makes, he's making an objective truth claim, meaning what he's saying is not dependent upon whether or not someone agrees with it. What he's saying is I am, period. He's pointing back to this passage in Exodus where God reveals himself to Moses is Echia, or I am, or I will be, and then told, Moses is told to call him Yahweh, or he is, he will be, 
statement about his reality. Regardless of whether or not you feel like it's true, whether you agree with it or not, Jesus is making a claim that is objective. And so my, my challenge for us today is just if you come here, like most of us, influenced by this idea of like uh, moral relativism or this thing that uh, it makes it hard to label anything as objectively true, I want you to just suspend that, if you would, for a little bit as we dive into this conversation. To ask the question, what if there is someone who is objectively, period, who is objectively good, objectively kind, objectively powerful, as he describes himself, uh, as Yahweh describes himself in Exodus, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, slow to anger, forgiving iniquity and sin, but by no means excusing the guilty. What if those things about him are true, period? And I don't know if y'all noticed this as we were reading the scripture in verses 14 through 17, uh, where Jesus kind of appeals to their, uh, their logic. He's saying, these claims are valid, even though I make them about myself. And then he goes on to say that you judge me by these standards, and I don't judge anyone. Then he goes on to say, your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. I don't know if anybody else was like, dang, Jesus, like, that's a baller move in an argument right there to like, you need two people? I got one. It's me and my father. Watch out. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? I'm appealing to God. It's pretty cool. Um, so Jesus here makes an I am statement. And today, the one that he makes is I am the light of the world. Uh, light can be associated with goodness, with flourishing, and it's contrasted with darkness. In the Bible, Darkness can represent the chaos out of which God creates the light. We see this in Genesis uh, in the beginning, uh, also in Job chapter 12. Darkness also can serve to depict death, the cessation of life. We see this in Job chapter 10 and chapter 38. Frequently, darkness also denotes sin, rebellion, and oppression. We see this in Job, Psalms, Isaiah. It's overtones of chaos, death, and alienation suggest God's fearsome wrath and judgment. We see that in a lot of prophetic literature. Yeah, 47, Jeremiah 13, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, and Zephaniah, for example. And so what I want to do today is I want to dive into some of the things that I think Jesus is getting at when he says, I am the light of the world. Why I think that's incredibly good news. And our whole kind of premise in this series that we're in, and we're in week three of it, is if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. In other words, I understand that there are a lot of things that we may disagree on. Uh, and there are things that when it comes to Christianity that you may totally think are wrong or bogus. And to be fair, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, probably they are. Uh, a lot of them. But if he did, everything changes. Things about ethics, things about uh, what to do with certain texts in the Bible, all these things that are great and important conversations that I want to have. But it stems from, is Jesus who he says he is? And so if you're a person who doesn't know where you stand with even thinking about Jesus, the invitation is, see who he says he is. Come and see. And if you thought you've known Jesus for a long time, or you have, invitation is the same. Come and see. Come to know who this person of Jesus is and be transformed to look more like him. So the first thing about the light I want to point out is sometimes we don't like how the light comes. In the Gospel of John, uh, in chapter 5, uh, there is this uh, story where Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. And if you know uh, much about the Gospels, you know Jesus would often get in trouble for healing people on the Sabbath, or at least multiple times. And, and it got me thinking about when Jesus shows up and he does something good, people are upset with him that he did something good. Sometimes we don't like how the light comes. 
Uh, what does light do? It illuminates. It also can cleanse. So I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with someone, a friend, a loved one, a spouse, family member, or just with God, when light is shown on something within you, a dark place within you. Someone calls out something in you that is a little bit dark. Someone says, hey, you're acting kind of prideful here. I don't know about you. Uh, my natural inclination is often towards being quite defensive and saying, mm-mm, no, 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 I'm in the light <laughs> or the right. You're in the dark. I don't know if you ever felt like that. Sometimes we don't like how the light comes. You go on to realize later, maybe later that night or the next day, shoot, <laughs> they were right. Maybe it's the flip side. Maybe you've been in conversations with someone and you've brought up something, hey, the thing that you're saying here is incredibly offensive and rude. But to them, mm-mm, no, 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 no. I'm gonna have nothing to do with that statement. Sometimes we don't like how light comes. Light illuminates. So uh, we've got a couple people who live in our neighborhood. Um, neighbor Travis, right across, we have coyotes uh, that run in between like our, not in between our houses, but in between like our, the woods. And uh, coyotes are loud, so you can hear them at night. But uh, if you try to go out and find them in the woods, it's pretty hard, unless you have a flashlight. But I don't know if you've ever gone out to look for them. Travis, you may have done this too with a flashlight, and you can't see them until you get the flashlight and you just see their beating eyes on you. Uh, when things are in the dark, you often can't realize how sinister they are until light is shown on them. And so one of the things that light does is it illuminates what was once previously hidden, that now you can see what it was. Think about, does anybody still like playing hide-and-seek? Anybody? Nope? Okay, one person. Thank you. Me too. It's fun. Um, I'm excited for when our son learns to play hide-and-seek. It's a good time. Hide-and-seek is way easier in the dark than it is in the light. Light illuminates, meaning... When Jesus says he is the light of the world, it means nothing within you is hidden. Those really, really dark, scary, uncomfortable, coyote-like hiding in the woods spaces are not hidden from God. He sees. He knows. Light illuminates. And this message can be both hopeful and terrifying at the same time. Uh, if you're a person like me who has uh, at times felt like you just wish people would notice you or see you or that you would feel known, there's a part of being in the light that is like, wow, I'm seen for who I am. God loves me is this. And, and the hard part or one of the interesting things about the Christian faith is we hold this tension of, one, being made in the image of God, which means that every person, regardless of your background, regardless of your religious heritage, regardless of what you've done or not done, you are deeply loved by God. Why? Because you're made in the image of God. So you're worthy of dignity and respect and have inherent value. Not because I like you or dislike you, just because you're made in the image of God, which means that there's something about you that reflects something about God into the world. And so part of walking into the light means realizing I am deeply loved. Not because I've done anything particularly wonderful to deserve it, but because I'm made in the image of God. To quote Psalm, or to reference Psalm 139, that he knit me together in my mother's womb, that he knew me before I was even born. I'm deeply loved. But on the other side, walking into the light, or the light illuminating, indicates that we have these dark parts within us, sin, evil, terrible thoughts. And when light illuminates it, it's not just like those things that you did when you were young that you hope nobody knows about, that somebody probably does. 
but it's about those things that are like, that you would never actually say out loud. It's about those subconscious thought patterns and heart motives that you have. Uh, it's about those times even when you do seemingly good things out of wrong motives, when you do something kind for someone and they think, oh wow, you're an amazing person and you're being kind. But if you're really honest, you know at least part of you is doing it because you want them to think that you're kind. Because you want to feel appreciated, which is a fine and good desire. When the light illuminates, Jesus saying he's the light of the world says he sees all of that. And so walking into the light, and one of the things that's difficult about the invitation to walk in the light is simultaneously saying, okay, that means I recognize and I live into the fact that I'm deeply loved. It also means that I recognize that I have really dark places within me that I'm going to walk into the light. And I'm going to allow Christ's light to shine on those and illuminate them, bring them into the light to provide healing and cleansing. But the thing is about light, uh, not everyone recognizes the light. In John chapter 1, which we uh, read a couple weeks ago, it says in verses 4 and 5, or verse 4 and 5, the word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. And then you go on down and tenant says he came into the very world he created but the world didn't recognize him in other words jesus is making a claim that him being the light of the world is not dependent upon whether or not someone thinks he is he just is he is the light of the world i shared this a couple weeks ago but uh in some listening prayer that uh, some of our uh, church members were doing one of our elders uh, got this picture in her head of a house uh, a house in kind of our neighborhood. And this house had a big window. And this window had thick, thick paint on it. And when I started thinking about that, she just kind of got the picture and didn't know necessarily what it meant. But that image has come up to me uh, multiple times since then. What does a window do? It lets in light, right? Which is good. It's nice to have a house with windows. It's nice to have a place that we can meet in with windows, even if it's dark and muggy outside. Windows let light in. What happens if they're covered? Light can't come in. Thick, thick paint means what? Light can't come in. Does that change the fact that there's light outside? No. No. I mean, maybe you all bought like blackout curtains before, which they're awesome. Uh, if you haven't bought some, they're great. It can be really disorienting too, though. But what I imagine Jesus doing, uh, even in sense him doing perhaps in the series that we're in and talking about who Jesus is, it's scraping away these layers of paint on the window to be able to see the light. And what happens is you scrape away layers of paint on a window. There's still reflections of the paint on there. It's distorted light. You don't see it for who the light truly is. And this is fascinating. Some label what is light as dark and what is dark as light. In John chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus is called demon-possessed. Now, that's a pretty stark contrast to who Jesus is claiming to be, who is the Son of God, fully God and fully man. Matthew 12, uh, we see that Jesus casts out, uh, and heals, um, casts out a demon and heals a man who was uh, blind and couldn't speak. And it says, the crowd was amazed and asked, could it be that Jesus is the Son of David, the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. 
So I say this to say that what Jesus is making a claim about, too, about saying he is the light of the world, he is also the determiner of what is good and what is bad. That sometimes we label something that is bad as something that is good, and we label something that is good as something that is bad. That is not the determiner of what is ultimately good or ultimately bad. Now, light has a lot of functions. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. Are you guys familiar with like our circadian rhythm at all? Do you know if I use that word? Uh, so circadian rhythm is kind of this idea of our bodies being on like a bio, having a biological clock. So typical, we run on a 24-hour schedule. And so does any, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this, but it's pretty common uh, that in the wintertime, a lot of people get seasonal affective disorder, also abbreviated as SAD, which I think is a fantastic acronym for what it is. Uh, meaning that in the wintertime, usually is when it occurs, people are more prone to feel depressed, sad. And it's largely at least partially because of light, that the decrease in sunlight may disrupt your body's internal clock and lead to feelings of depression. And one of many treatments is actually go and get sun. Be in the sunlight, because we are meant for the light, not the dark. And it's fascinating. I was uh, reading a while back about people who'd been deprived of light and sight for extended periods of time. This week I actually watched some uh, videos of people who, like, filmed themselves like <laughs> uh, going in total isolation in complete dark for a week. It's interesting what it does to you. Uh, and I was telling somebody about this study that I was going to reference today, and I imagine these might be unethical now, but we can still glean from them uh, today. It, light, not having light, really messes with you. Uh, at first, if you've ever like had to close your eyes and start to rely on other senses, you notice your other senses like seem to get better, right? You can hear more, you can smell more. But after not a long time, your bodily rhythm, your circadian rhythm, gets really, really thrown off. Scientists have found that when light is deprived, some people would actually move to a 48-hour cycle instead of a 24-hour one. There was this 1965 study where they put two people in total isolation uh, in, a, in caves. So I said, maybe not 100% ethical. Uh, they put them in there outside of like, their contact with researchers. They couldn't even talk with each other. And they found that one of them actually took a nap, or what they thought was a nap, they slept for 30 hours and only thought it was a nap. They also, uh, both of them, their names were Laris and Senny. One was in there 88 days and one was 126. Uh, their sense of time was totally jacked up. They also began to become friends with rats uh, while they were in there because they were looking for companions. The companionship piece is fascinating, you know, when we're in the dark and the people that we find uh, to be really kind or compelling to us are just the people we need community from. And if we actually saw it in the light, we'd realize, mm, this might not be so great for me. I don't actually want to be friends with rats. But what's even more fascinating than this like, companionship piece to me is the hallucinations. There was uh, another study where in just 48 hours, not even a crazy amount of time, these British researchers put, uh, I think it was six volunteers uh, in isolation. And they found that multiple of them were hallucinating. And I'm not talking just like, you know, talking to a friend, like just picturing some stuff in your mind. I'm talking like seeing a heap of 5,000 oysters in the room, seeing tiny cars, snakes, zebras, fighter planes, mosquitoes, and even the sensation of the room taking off. I wasn't there, but I don't imagine any of those things were actually, literally there with them. So if the physical dark can do that to us, and the absence of light can be that harmful to us, don't you think this bigger more larger scale picture of dark could do something like that to us. To cause us to see and believe things that aren't actually true. 
And don't you think it would be quite disorienting to think, I mean, just imagine if you've been in the dark and you had a, I don't know, made a friend out of the zebra that you were hallucinating, which was probably really comforting while you were in there. Someone flips on the light. Not only does it burn your eyes, but then you realize that your friend's not there. <laughs> That'd be so sad. I'd probably cry, you know what I mean? And, and that's one of the things with the light, even. Like, it's the invitation to step in the light, like I said, it's like both, like, I'm deeply loved, but also it's coming in contact with these dark places. And that is really, really deeply unsettling. Like flipping on the lights. I don't know if anyone's ever, like, when you're dead asleep, like, flipped on the lights and, like, really disorienting and quite annoying, <laughs> to be honest. So don't you think this deeper sort of dark could do something to you? In John eight fourteen through 18, as we read earlier, we learn that light is not determined by people's ability to recognize it. I was reminded this week of, do uh, you guys know who Smash Mouth is? Okay, hopefully. All right, man, I'm seeing some of the young people not knowing who Smash Mouth is. Uh, they have this famous song called All Star, and there's a line in there that says, all that glitters is gold. Contrary to their belief or opinion listed in that song, not all that glitters is gold. <laughs> Sometimes the thing presents as really shiny and bright and light actually can be really, really dangerous. We see that time and time again throughout Scripture, as a couple weeks ago preached about uh, idols that we have, uh, things around like uh, money and fame and success and even the idol of love or family, like things that even can be good. When you take a look at them and look at them in the light, you realize that's not actually ultimately speaking light. Not all that glitters is gold. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus instructs people to look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verses 12 through 15, it says, I will continue doing what I've always done. This will undercut those who are looking for an opportunity to boast that their work is just like ours. And check this out. He says, these people are false apostles. They're deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I am not surprised, and pay attention to this with this light, think, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. I think there's been plenty of evidence in popular uh, culture and online and in within you know, Christian and evangelical circles to show that people who are proclaiming to be agents of righteousness and messengers of light often are really marred uh, by darkness. And they can present or even call what they're doing as being righteous or being of light when actually what it is, is of dark. Which is why a big thing that I keep saying in this whole series is like, our job is not to point just to here. My job is I want to point you to Jesus, to look at the true light. We're called to be the light of the world, but I know myself well enough to know that I've got dark places that are still presently being illuminated. Some that I'm aware of, some that I will be aware of when I'm 50. I hope. <laughs> but this side of eternity, I will not reach that perfection that... I'm called, uh, invited into participating in Christ's life with. Things that look good can be bad. And this idea of light, when Jesus says he's the light of the world, it brings up a couple things within Scripture. It brings up God's first act of creation in Genesis chapter 1, when he said, let there be light. But also, um, this is an interesting thing with, like, within Judaism. So a couple months ago, we preached through Leviticus, uh, which is everybody's favorite book, I know. Um, and there's this thing in there, a talk that's called the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Shelters. 
And it was associated with a reminder of the Exodus, when God brought people out of Egypt and in slavery into freedom. And in John chapter 7, verse 2, we're told that this kind of takes place during the festival of tabernacles or shelters. And so the tabernacle, which later became the temple, was a place where God's presence was said to particularly reside. There are all these specific rules and regulations on what they were supposed to do around it, but you wanted to go and be with God, get atonement for your sins, all that kind of stuff, centered around the temple or tabernacle. And, and I say all that to say this festival of tabernacles or shelters, that this ancient uh, Jewish work or like a collection of uh, Jewish works that's kind of post-biblical called the Mishnah, which describes the lighting of four large lampstands in the temple court of the women at the close of the first festival day. And these lampstands produced so much light, and I quote here, that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect the light of the Beth Hashubah. And that the celebrants would actually dance around these candlesticks. Historians actually would point that it was quite a sight, that during the festival of tabernacles or shelters, it like lit up the area around it. And so Jesus, preaching it here during this time, in this space, knows what he's doing. He's saying, look at this light that's lighting up your city a little bit. I'm not just that light. I am the light of the world. And like the Exodus, where if you remember the story, if you're familiar with it, God led the Israelites out of Egypt with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Light. He's saying, I am the light of the world, that anyone who follows me can be led out of slavery to death and darkness and sin and decay, and now can be led into a new sort of life. Jesus is making a profound claim, uh, both like philosophically and just talking about light, but also particularly speaking to what these people were, were walking through. He's claiming that his light was superior to the light that was provided during the desert, the desert wanderings. And there's this dichotomy that we're presented with. Do we follow Jesus and walk in the light, or do we walk in darkness? Because Jesus illuminates things. Right before this, in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, there's this story where there's this woman who gets caught, caught in adultery, and people come to Jesus kind of trying to trap him, as they often do, and say, well, the law of Moses says we're supposed to stone her. Um, and there's this interesting stuff about Jesus writing in the sand, and scholars debate what he was trying to write in the sand. But um, you may remember this quote where he says something to the extent of, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. If you're familiar with the story enough, everybody leaves, except the woman and Jesus. Because what they realize is that if they're honest and the light illuminates in their dark places, they've got dark places within them too. The question is not whether or not we do, it's a matter of whether or not we're going to be open to like allowing the light to show in and allow that to be changed. We repent and turn. And then we see in John chapter 9, right after this, Jesus refers to himself again as the light of the world. And he heals a man who was blind, who couldn't see, because light helps us see. And, and I love the blind man's response. He's being questioned by people about how Jesus did this and if Jesus was a sinner and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus says, and the man says this, but I know this. Something else he doesn't know, but he said, I know this. I was blind, and now I can see. And I think that's such a beautiful testimony that maybe you're here in a place today where you've maybe been walking with Jesus or you don't know all the things that you think you should know. Maybe your testimony is like, all right, well, I, you know, I, I don't know about some of this stuff, but I do know this. I was blind, and now I can see. 
I once was dead, and now I'm alive. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Because you see, one day people will recognize the light. We're told in Scripture that every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so the question is, will we get in on it now? Because our lives are meant to point towards Jesus, both through the way that we live and through the way that we proclaim Jesus and talk. Matthew 5, verses, verse 14, tells us that we are the light of the world. And, and so as we kind of get ready to close, one of the things that um, we like to do here is to uh, help us lean into practices that help us to implement these things into our everyday lives. Uh, because I know, just realistically speaking, uh, we can hear something on a Sunday, read scripture, and it can be cool and great and maybe helpful. I hope it is. But if we don't implement it into our bodies and implement it into our weekly rhythms, it might not do that much for us. But there's this practice uh, that uh, me and some friends used to call uh, walking in the light. It comes from 1 John chapter 1, and it says this. This is the message we heard from Jesus, and now declare to you, God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. And so the practice is walking in the light or confession, bringing those dark places within you that, just mind you, God already sees and knows, bringing those to God and to other people. Because what you'll actually find, this is incredibly uncomfortable, <laughs> but what you will actually find is you start to do that and you bring those dark places that previously no one knew about to someone else, and someone else is able to be a vessel of God's love and healing to you, what you're able to find is that even those places that were really dark, you're able to experience the love of God. Because previously you were keeping parts of yourself that weren't fully known. And when you bring those things into the light and you walk in the light as he is in the light, it helps you to operate more fully into who he is. And it actually, ironically, doesn't just make you feel bad. It actually can start to make you like feel more loved. Now, obviously, there's a lot more conversation to be had on who you confess these things to and being wise about that. I'm not going to be up here and confessing all of my sins to you. That's not the most healthy thing. But I would encourage you have a regular practice of confession. Because walking in the light, I can't help but think about this, that has anyone ever touched a light bulb or tried to change a light bulb when it was still hot? What does it do? It burns. Light burns. Let it burn you clean. Let it purify you. Bring it into the light and allow the Lord to work a mighty power in you to transform what once was really dark into something that is a beacon of hope and light. We all pray with me. God, thank you so much for your love and your grace and your kindness. Thank you for being here with us in this space. Lord, I pray for those uh, here that aren't sure what they think about you. Lord, I pray that um, you'd help us all just to take a step into the light. Lord, there's things that we've kept hidden. Lord, I ask that um, even in these moments of prayer that we'd be able to bring them to you. I um, mean, that you would meet us there. Lord, for whatever wickedness is in there, I pray that you would illuminate it. And I pray that you would forgive us of our sins. I mean, God, I pray that as we sing to you, we would just um, step into the hope and light and goodness uh, that is being in your presence. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.